0: Hello, I'm Guy Walters and this is History Now, a history podcast from Mail Plus. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to on Sea in East Sussex, but if you don't know much about it, I can imagine that it's not the type of place that you associate with swastikas and teenagers doing Hitler salutes. But if you were there back in the late 1930s and you would happened to walk past a large villa on Dorset Road, I understand, You would have seen and heard just that because it was the site of this extraordinary finishing school called the Augusta Victoria College and this was headed by a mysterious woman called Frau Helena Rockel and it was there that she educated a group of young German girls and women whose parents and godparents were members of the Nazi elite and they included people like Himmler and von Ribbentrop. Now. I'd never heard of this place before and it's really bizarre to think of these young German women, you know, the scions of all these sort of, kind of Nazi leaders um, and, and sort of Prussian aristocrats, they weren't all Nazis, um, being educated in this kind of, you know, what's traditionally called a sleepy British seaside town. And, and it's even more extraordinary when you look at a, 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 at a picture of the school's crest, which is on the girls' blazers, which even features a Union Jack and a swastika. And Obviously, I'm amazed that no one's yet made a film about it, but they have. And it's called Six Minutes to Midnight and it's coming out quite soon. It's starring Judy Dench and Eddie Izzard. And I've looked at the trailer and it's fair to say, I think the producers have taken the story of the college. And let's just be kind and say they somewhat run with the ball. But anyway, it doesn't matter because it gives me a really good excuse to talk about one of my favourite topics one of my favourite people. The topics are the links between Britain and Nazi Germany before the war, because there are a whole plethora of societies and, and somewhat shifty individuals who are doing their best to stay friends with Nazi Germany, all the way right up to the outbreak of war. Now, some of these people are understandably pretty keen on, on peace, so. Fair enough. And there were others who were downright fascists and, and fellow travellers. So to discuss this, I'm joined by the excellent Adrian wheel who, full disclosure, must say is a great mate of mine. But he's also an equally great historian, journalist, soldier even. And he's written extensively on this topic, not least his brilliant book Renegades, uh, which was a groundbreaking history of the British and Commonwealth citizens who joined the Waffen-SS during Second World War, a book I urge you all to read. And in fact, it even inspired my first novel, The Traitor. So uh, I've got a lot to thank and probably even to blame Adrian for. But anyway, in the meantime, Adrian, thanks so much for coming along. Delighted to be here, Guy. Excellent. And now, have you seen the trailer for this film? Had, had you heard of of the Augusta Victoria College in Bexhill on sea no, I hadn't.
1: And uh, yeah, I've seen the I've seen the trailer. It looks as if it's going to be, as you say, the, they've run with the ball a bit. They've taken a few liberties with the story uh, and turned it into a into a sort of a spy story. But uh, but I'm, I can't wait to see the film, actually, because, uh, you know, it's got a it's got a pretty stellar cast and uh, it looks quite interesting.
0: You know, I was sort of well aware of the fact that there were Germans who you know educated their children in Britain um, before the war. Where did Ribbentrop's son go? So uh, Rudolf von Ribbentrop, uh, son of the German
1: foreign minister and at one point uh, ambassador to to Britain, was at Westminster School. So I think he's probably the only senior Waffen-SS officer and Knights Cross winner to have been educated at uh, Westminster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right. But, you know, there there were others. So uh, Richard Walter-Darre, who was... Uh, If you like, the chief ideologist for the SS and was also an agriculture minister in the Nazi government. Uh, He went to King's College School, Wimbledon.
0: Uh, And so, you know, there were a few of these people around in Britain in the pre war period. I mean, the, the, the Nazis from, from memory, they were, they, they were rather obsessed by the British public school system, weren't they? I seem to remember Aerie Neve in one of his memoirs. Uh, we've spoken about him on the podcast before, but it was talked about how I think that, that Himmler was obsessed with Etonians and thought they were sort of soft but cunning. <laughs> He's probably he's probably prob- probably right. I, I will, full disclosure: I may have been there, and um, it, it's. Uh, but do you think there was a sort of what? What do you think was the fascination of the public school system for people like Himmler or or, or, or the Nazis?
1: Well, I think it comes down to uh, to the British Empire really, and and particularly India. And the Nazis were fascinated by how Britain was able to control this vast territory, India, with you know. Essentially, a few thousand British people there. In the sort of Nazi conception of race, clearly, you know, white people were superior to brown people, uh, mm. and so so there. There's an assumption that they will be able to uh, to exert control. But uh, there was this fascination that you know there were however many thousand members of the British Raj but that they were controlling this territory
0: with millions and millions of, uh, of Indians without too much difficulty. So I guess that someone like Hitler or Himmler would have looked and said, well, you know, what, what gave us the ability to do it? And presumably he would have looked at how we were you know, educating our, our young men specifically, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's very much the idea that uh, that Waterloo was one on the playing fields of Eton. I mean, <laughs> we keep going back there. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> but um, yeah, so Waterloo is one of the playing fields of Eton. India is controlled by people who've come up through the British public school system uh, and Actually, an interesting sort of corollary of this was that within the Waffen SS officer schools that were, were established in the nineteen thirties, they played cricket because uh, cricket was seen as you know, this sort of mystical ritual that uh, that British public school boys went through which somehow fitted them for colonial rule. And so I find uh, that
0: absolutely extraordinary <laughs> the SS playing cricket.
1: I mean I yeah I, Absolutely. I mean, you know, I would love to see I, I don't know if they had the sort of uh, you know the lovely cable knit uh, cricket sweaters with the SS runes on it, or anything like that. But uh, but
0: it would be fascinating to see. Oh, I just I, did, I suppose that this is. uh I mean, there were there were you know some genuine uh, links, of course, in in the royals, of course, who was of massively German ancestry. But there were, of course. You know, there there was a lot of sort of high society links, weren't there, between Britain and Nazi Germany, and and you know certainly I've written about the Berlin Olympics, and that was a kind of festival of Anglo-Nazi German get-togethers. But there 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 were a lot of links, weren't there, between the sort of British ruling classes and Germany? Yes, there were,
1: and obviously there there are the sort of high-profile people like Unity Mitford and uh, so on. But you know, at all levels of society, there was there was a sort of certain amount of mutual admiration between Britain and Germany partly through sort of uh i suppose shared history you know uh we were on the same side in the napoleonic wars and, and things of that sort uh, and then also i think nazism or fascism in general but nazism in particular uh offered uh you know it seemed to be an alternative to to the rather sort of muddly british way of doing things and and that was attractive to a lot of people in in britain the idea that you could you could order society i mean this is before before the the real horrors of nazism were, were fully understood but uh, but there was this idea that you know you could make the trains run on time everything was sort of clean there were young fit enthusiastic boys everywhere and this was kind of reflected in the 1930s that um, lots of young british women for example would go to uh, to places you know, the towns in the Rhineland and Munich and so on to go to finishing schools there. So so it was a two-way process. It's
0: almost like a kind of expression of soft power, isn't it? You know, you, you if you end up sort of being inculcated with British values or the other way around with German values, then you're going to be kind of more sympathetic to that regime or that country, aren't you?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, one of the things when I was researching my book about the Brits who sort of fought for, for Nazi Germany in the war, quite a few of them were people who had been there as part of cultural exchanges or they you know they'd gone to teach english at uh, language schools and things of that sort and you know it was because they had this this sort of affection for germany and they they had this i suppose a sort of slightly idealized vision of what of what it was like
0: so some of this um, just takes place on a sort of individual basis of course i mean i've just been starting to reread some of uh... Chips Channon's diaries, the new edition edited by Simon Heffer, oh, yes. and I've just been look looking through the bits about the, the sort of unexplicated bits, some of which are unmentionable on a podcast, a family <laughs> podcast, but uh, <laughs> certainly, certainly the bits in the in the Berlin Olympics, you know, when you get Chips Channon, sort of de facto aristocrat, sort of going over and, and hobnobbing with the likes of Goebbels and Ribbentrop and so on. So you've got these things happening on a kind of individual and formal basis, I guess. But there were various societies, weren't there?
1: Yes, there were. So I think. In the period before the Nazis came to power, so up to 1933, there were various sort of cultural groups, which I think tended to sort of wither away once the Nazis had taken power. But new ones appeared to take their place. So I think the uh, what's the word? The legitimate uh, face yeah. of this was the the Anglo-German Fellowship, which was um, uh, essentially it's a kind of society to organise grand social get-togethers and, uh, uh, if you would like, links at the at the top top end of society. So lots of um, politicians, mostly Tories but some some Labour and Liberal politicians as well joined this. It was sponsored partly by the German Foreign Office as well. So if a sort of top level visitor came to uh, to London the Anglo-German fellowship would hold a big dinner. So they had people like Rudolf Hess, von Ribbentrop, General von Blomberg when he was the uh, the head of the German army uh, came to a big dinner and uh, so all and that these people was the set
0: of... foot in Britain as part I mean that's what people sort of generally yes, forget I mean, I mean people know uh... about Ribbentrop
1: yeah yeah so Ribbentrop was Ribbentrop was in London for for more than a year I think as the uh, as the mm. German ambassador there are some well-known photographs of uh, General von Blomberg in his Wehrmacht uniform turning up at Croydon Airport I think it was and uh, inspecting a guard of honour of British soldiers uh, so you know they, these people all came over uh, and no particularly good reason why they shouldn't at that time we were at
0: peace. No I mean I suppose I've gone to speak at the Bristol Anglo-German Society and that society existed for many years but you know that that's just there to foster good relationships between the UK and Germany and for sort of you know German enthusiasts to talk about German history and so on and that seems to me you know it strikes me as being on that sort of level but weren't there other societies that? Probably were more seduced by fascism than, than than they might have been. Wasn't there the link? Wasn't that? <laughs> uh,
1: yes. Yeah. So there were there were several groups, I and mean, this sort of goes to the rise of fascism in in Britain, uh, yeah. which was never a big movement, but but it was certainly inspired in part at least by the Nazis. And so a number of yeah pretty unsavoury individuals who were involved with fascism or with extreme anti-Semitism in the UK were involved in groups which. Were sort of semi-conspiratorial, I suppose, and and actually to the extent that they attracted the attention of MI5, uh, who infiltrated them and saw them as a threat to security. Uh, so, I mean, I so, suppose the most so,
0: notorious of those was the Right Club, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, so the Right Club. This was um, a group set up by uh, a Conservative MP, actually, funnily enough, Archibald Maul Ramsey, another Old Etonian, um, who was <laughs> <laughs> MP for Peebles in Scotland. Not, I think, the sharpest knife in the draw. He was at Eton, went to Sandhurst, commissioned in the Coldstream Guards immediately before the First World War. Uh, And then uh, he he suffered a severe head wound at some point and so was unable to uh, continue fighting. But he became interested in Conservative politics after the war, eventually got himself elected as MP in Peebles uh, back in the day when most Scottish MPs were Tories. But he was a strange man, sort of, I think, became rather obsessed about the connection between Jews and communism, which I think many prominent communists of the 1920s and 30s, particularly in Russia, uh, were Jewish. So uh, people like Trotsky and uh, Kamenev, uh, Zinoviev I think was Jewish as well. Uh, So quite a number of leading communists were Jewish and conspiracy-minded people put two and two together, made about eight, so linked um, communism with with the Jews uh, and saw it as a sort of conspiracy. Ramsey was one of these guys. He was also a sort of fundamentalist Christian in some, some ways uh, and he was uh, very exercised by the Spanish Civil War where he believed that uh, Jewish communists were uh, conspiring to, um, to sort of overthrow the Catholic Church and uh, whatever in Spain. And so he set up, well he set up the Right Club in 1939 as a kind of conspiratorial pro-Nazi group Linking up a number of uh, of fascists, national socialists, uh, and other fellow travellers, they weren't necessarily doing anything to harm British interests at the time, but they were they were keen to uh, bring about peace between uh, between Britain and Germany, or prevent prevent the sort of fall into war.
0: And they, they had linked with Nazi Germany, yes.
1: Yes, they did. Yeah. So uh, so yeah. a number of them, I think, probably more social than. Um, official but certainly they were connected with Nazi Germany they most of the people who were involved in it had spent time in Nazi Germany uh, or would have liked to i mean william joyce for example was a member of of the right club he was a member of the League. william joyce who of course uh, becomes
0: lord hawhor so yeah who becomes
1: lord hawhor indeed and uh, uh, another chap john beckett who uh, had been william joyce's partner in setting up the national socialist league in britain a former labor mp in fact uh, was involved and Lots of the sort of more fringe, anti-Semitic people within British fascism were, were involved in these, uh, in these groups. Which were, as I mentioned, under intense surveillance by by MI five.
0: Yes, well, I mean, of course, you, I know you have, and I've I've certainly looked at a lot of the files, and I've also looked at the uh, the membership register of the Wright Club, which is held by the Vina Library. Uh, yes. Was it the infamous Red Red Book? Yes. And it's a list of seriously, <laughs> seriously shifty people, that, that some yeah. of whom you've mentioned, but also there's this extraordinary words to a hymn to be sung. It's a land of hope and glory, land of dope and jury. Um, yeah, and, <laughs> and, and the last line talking about, we'll give the rope to hang them yet. Um, it's, yes. it's, just, it's, it's seriously nasty stuff, isn't it? I mean, this is really sort of virulent anti-Semitism.
1: It is. Um, the, I think the sort of slogan of the right club was, uh, was PJ, Perish Judah which uh, you know, they'd say instead sort of Heil Hitler. I mean, it's just, it's it's so prep school, and yet at the same time, it's so
0: nasty. Uh, it, it really yeah. is sort of
1: disturbing.
0: I want to talk about what happens to all these people a little bit later, but are there any other sort of clubs and societies that MI5 are keeping an eye on, or, or we, we should know about now, or we should remember now? Was there wasn't there the link, wasn't that one, with yeah, so, Donville, some retired admiral? <laughs> yes, uh,
1: Admiral Sir Barry Donville, former Director of Naval Intelligence... A uh, four-star admiral who was, again, uh, a virulent anti-Semite, uh, believed that there was a sort of Jewish communist Masonic conspiracy that was uh, seeking world domination. Goodness knows how I arrived at that, uh, <laughs> that view. <laughs> but um, yeah, so he was he was a leading member. The General JFC Fuller was yet another one. He was a man who whose principal claim to fame is that, uh, is that he was an early advocate of armoured warfare. And... Somebody that German generals took a great deal of notice uh, of in in the pre-war era. Uh, so you know, if you like the British general who came up with the idea of Panzer divisions, um, which the British never really cottoned on to, certainly not at that stage, but the Germans did. So he was he was one of the uh, one of the members. Arnold Lees, the famous camel doctor. Oh, tell me a bit more about him. Yeah. Well, yes, yeah, yet another nutcase. Um, he was. Uh, He was a veterinary surgeon who had served in India and various other places around the British Empire, uh, specialising in the diseases of camels, uh, who came back and uh, retired to Norfolk, uh, where he set up the Imperial Fascist League and was one of, I think, only two people who were explicitly fascists ever to be elected uh, to office in the UK when he became a local councillor with one of his colleagues. In uh, in Stamford in Norfolk, but uh, he was principally anti-Semitic. He he believed that the Jewish method of ritual slaughter of animals, so kosher slaughter, was um, you know rendered Jews as subhumans uh, and you know beyond the pale. Right. And so uh, thoroughly, thoroughly nasty little man. Uh, he believed that the British Union of Fascists were not nearly anti-Semitic enough. So he referred to the BUF as the kosher fascists because he was I can so, so he's really beyond the pale. Oh, ah, he's utterly nuts. He was actually convicted after the Second World War for harboring escaped Waffen-SS POWs uh, and uh, spent some time in in prison as a result. This was um, by then he'd moved to Guildford uh, and uh, so, you know, this was bringing uh, the Waffen-SS to Surrey. <laughs> Terrible place for them. <laughs>
0: It is just extraordinary. And, and and I know that you have you you recently lectured, I know, online about about people like William Joyce and some of these characters who who, who end up in Berlin during the war. Um, I mean, just briefly, can we just talk very briefly about about William Joyce? Because he is he is rather a large figure. And so he was he was pretty active in in the 30s in London, wasn't he?
1: Yes, he was. And, and in fact, another old boy of King's College School, Wimbledon. So, uh, you know, a bit of a bit of a Nazi connection there. The interesting thing about Joyce is, of course, for, a, you know, best known British traitor of the Second World War, he wasn't actually British. Um, he was born in born in the US in New York and never renounced his US citizenship. Uh, and uh, he was taken over to Ireland by his parents when he was quite small, about three or four years old, grew up there until his sort of late teens. But his family were loyalists; they were they were pro-unionists, uh, and so they eventually relocated to uh, to Britain in the 1920s. At which point, this is when um, Joyce went to to KCS. I think it was only you know for a, right. a couple of terms or something of that sort. But um, anyway, he became active firstly in conservative politics, but became more and more right-wing uh, as the 1920s went on. He joined a, uh, one of the very early fascist groups, the British Fascisti which is a rather strange organisation, went from there to the BUF, where he was head of propaganda for Mosley, and then was expelled from the BUF, or rather, he was fired from his job, left the BUF and set up the National Socialist League. But essentially he was, he was a pro-Nazi and he came to the conclusion just before the Second World War that if Britain was going to fight against Nazi Germany, he was going to be on the side of the Nazis. So he and his wife popped over to Berlin just before the war, Broke out, uh, and he was then recruited as a as a broadcaster by the uh, by the German propaganda ministry.
0: There also, of course, were sort of um, Nazi foreign organisations, weren't there? I mean, I seem to remember the MI five used to go along secretly to meetings of uh, the sort of Nazi foreign organisation in in meetings in Paddington. Um, did, were, yes, were those <laughs> those were just for Germans, right? They weren't for, for Brits or not? Yes. Yeah, so the the
1: Nazi party had what was called the AO, the Auslandsorganisation. Uh, which was a um, you know effectively like a sort of conservatives overseas or something like that. It yep. was uh, for Germans living elsewhere, but those groups then had links with people like uh, the link, the Right Club, the Anglo-German Fellowship, the British People's Party, uh, all of these right. sort of pro-fascist groups, uh, and so there were people in the German embassy in London who who had responsibility for for making contact with pro-nazi elements within british society one of whom, uh, fritz hesse who was the uh, press attaché at the german embassy then during the war he was he was head of the german foreign office england committee and so was responsible for formulating policy and uh, particularly with regards to you know whether there was any possibility of peace between between britain and and germany during the war that was uh, you know, his responsibility based on his knowledge of um, of uh, British Nazi sympathisers.
0: So, I mean, you have these other sort of, as well as these sort of of older people also, uh, just going back now just to sort of come in a full circle back to our uh, bizarre college in Bexhill-on-Sea. I also recall (laughs) the fact that you had sort of members of the Hitler Youth coming on holiday camps, actually to quite near where I live, down in the West Country in Dorset. And I think some of these Hitler Youth were, were cycling around, <laughs> supposedly gathering intelligence. Um, these little sort of Nazi camping parties in the West Country, and I <laughs> I, I, again, I just, I just find these links and things absolutely extraordinary. To think that there was this sort of um, this idea of swastikas in Wiltshire is, I always find so it sort of amuses me, but it's somewhat sinister. But what happens to some of these characters when war breaks out? Do they sort of see see the light, or are they locked up, or it's, what happens to them? Well. Uh defense regulation 18b happened to quite a lot of them uh,
1: so in the run up to war uh, i think before war was declared but uh, you know on the precautionary principle uh, mi5 and the home office uh, and the police had sat down together and worked out that uh, you know there were a number of people within the fascist uh, movements and the pro nazi movements that, that would probably be a danger to national security and they'd drawn up lists of people to be arrested uh, and detained on the outbreak of war under Defence Regulation 18b. So uh, when war started initially I think it was, it was less than 50 people were, were arrested within the first couple of weeks and detained but then there was a second wave in the summer of 1940 when, when the invasion threat became a bit more real uh, and so they were chucked in uh, initially in prisons in London and then shipped out mostly to the Isle of Man where uh, there were sort of internment camps for both for enemy aliens and for um, security suspects, uh, British security suspects. So, uh, you know, if you were if you were a German citizen without, you know, good contacts with uh, with the sort of anti-Nazi opposition, then you could expect to spend time uh, in an internment camp and you'd be alongside a whole bunch of British fascists. Uh, who were right. deemed to be threats to security.
0: So Ramsey, was he? Was he interned? Was Ramsey interned? He certainly was. Yeah. So no, he was, was, an, yeah. MP. So, uh, he was yep, an MP. until Still, he was locked up. Yeah.
1: Absolutely right. Yeah. So he was interned. Domville was interned, but uh, quite a number of of sort of leading politicians and uh, a number of uh, members of the peerage who who were Nazi sympathisers. By and large, they weren't locked away. So uh, so the Duke of Bedford. Uh, was um, was a very pro-Nazi individual, rather strange man. He was he managed to get away with it, and a bunch of other members of the House of Lords uh, also just about uh, got away with it. Although they were all placed on security suspect lists and uh, and were kept kept away from anything sensitive, uh, but Mosley spent four years in um, detention during the war, along with his wife, mostly in Holloway Prison, um, and uh, you know quite a few of the others uh, were detained up until 1944,
0: effectively. And then just to end up after the war, do most of these people then just live out in obscurity, I guess, I hope? Yeah, so there were attempts
1: to restart uh, fascist groups in, in the UK, and and they, they sort of dribbled on for a bit. But any attraction, I think, that fascism or Nazism had for the ordinary people British person effectively disappeared in uh, places like Belsen and Auschwitz. Yes, uh, and yeah. the fact that we had just fought, you know, a horrendously bitter war for six years uh, against against this philosophy, and uh, you know, it was uh, it it never really had a chance of of revival. I think it's worth looking at the fact that uh, probably at its peak, the British Union of Fascists had about thirty thousand. Thirty to 40,000 members. Uh, So that would have been in 1934. And it then dropped away quite dramatically. But just before the start of the war, it had probably gone back up to about 20,000. Mostly people who were were worried about, you know, who wanted peace, didn't want to fight a war. Since then, I don't think any sort of avowedly extreme right party in the UK has had a membership of more than about 10,000. And that was... um, uh, the uh, British National Party, whenever it was, about 10 years ago, when uh, they had a bit of electoral success uh, under Nick Griffin. But, but other than that, the, the extreme right has always been on the, on the fringes of, uh, of politics. And, you know, if you think um, the National Front maybe had 1,500 to 2,000 members at its absolute peak, you know, these, these, these things are, are right out there on the
0: edge. Yeah, they're, they're marginal, and it's and it's probably just as well. Well, Adrian, I know it's... that you and I could, could talk about this for, for hours on end, but, but I, I'm afraid I've got to have to wrap it up now. But that's it for today. Adrian, thank you so much. Now, if you want to buy uh, Adrian's books, you can easily find him online. I sorely recommend Renegades. Do have a look for that. And if you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope you did, then please subscribe to us and leave a, a nice review on Apple Podcasts, Google, or Spotify. And of course, you can catch up with us on Twitter at mailplus, and you can catch up with me at Guy Walters. In the meantime, thank you very much.